going here we are <laughs> here we are we're back we're back we're back the data protection breakfast club with a little bit of a different episode yeah, today. Like bonus episode man yeah. episode with uh a guy named shane jacobs who is a really uh really really smart person who designs spacesuits for a living which is crazy to me um I know he's one of your good buddies. I'm excited to meet him because like I love learning about stuff that's just so far outside my lane that it's just interesting because it exists. I've gone down rabbit hole with him, you know, as far as you can go on on space and on exploration and innovation. And there's definitely some overlap between between the tenets of what we're doing. There isn't really an overlap on, in terms of exactly what our lives, our day-to-day -day lives are like, you know, but he's managing teams. He's working on extremely innovative projects. They're working with really, really cutting edge types of data. So not the data that you and I are sort of accustomed to, but more like physical data, biometrics, sensors, um, and not out of tail. I don't like wearable IoT, right? Like interesting, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, I think if he ever if he ever moves on from that, that's the angle he'll, he'll of his course go. You know, of course, of course. And honestly, like, um, I think he's in this really cool space that's only going to like exponentially grow, given what's happening with like I don't know what the right term is, but like privatization of like the space industry, right? You know, you've got SpaceX, you've got all this stuff happening not just that then you've got the space force whatever the hell that is i mean i think that's more like signal than anything else but like who knows you know i mean i just think it's what an interesting topic to dedicate your career to right? it's super fascinating i know you've never been to space andy um <laughs> meaning <laughs> but i'll say this I, I and, and I've never met an astronaut. I've met, yeah, you two, you two are those spy planes, right? I've met a couple of YouTube pilots. I've met, I think it's a Nighthawk. Is that the big one that goes super fast? I don't know much about air, fixed wing aircraft, man. I'm a, I'm a boot wearing, yeah, whatever. Well, Shane is Shane is Canadian, and a couple of years ago, he tried. There was open tryouts to be a Canadian astronaut, and he tried what? out. And he oh. actually he actually made it pretty far. I mean, really? he's he's an old dude like me, so he you know he's he's in his late thirties, but he gave it he he did really well. And uh, and you know like there's some crazy stuff you know like I didn't even know Canada had like a human space program. I know they've got like a lot of other stuff. They picked like, two. I think they picked two. There were thousands of or hundreds of people that tried, and he did really well. But um, you cool, know. Man. He's, he's doing so much for the space program with what he's I, doing. I, I can't imagine like being in outer space because you rely on so much engineering and so many strangers just to stay alive. Yeah. The only thing I can think of in my life experience, I mean, I've been, I've done some interesting things, but no, nothing like that. Like, like scuba diving kind of feels like I'm really reliant on equipment. I mean, I've parachuted before that, but it's, that's a, quick thing like I'm not traveling and depending on it for hours and hours um but it's got to be like the extreme version of those things in the sense of I, I mentioned the scuba diving because I've actually uh don't anyway I've dived at night and like that is very I don't know how to explain it very disoriented very foreboding got to trust equipment a lot uh, outer space must be like 50x that experience and, and so, sometime you know 
Shane can illuminate that, you know, that, that, that feeling he's been weightless. Like he's done a lot of these things. Before. Wild. Um, but you know, this is super interesting conversation. I'm excited to have it. I'm excited for, for us to chat with him and do something a little different here. Let's get to it, man. All right. Here we are. The data protection <laughs> breakfast club with our friend Shane Jacobs, who is a spacesuit designer and he's wearing an actual space space helmet and so am i um, i don't have anything to say I can't, I can't hear in it i've got to take it off i can't hear anything neither can i uh, oh my god what an outstanding beginning to uh podcast welcome shane thanks for joining us shane is a really good friend of mine and um it's my pleasure to have you here and introduce two of my good friends to each other um, i'm really excited to have you here because like this is it's different than what we talk about normally. And um, I'm really excited to have this conversation. So likewise, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, it'll be fun to, to chat with you guys. And I can guarantee it will be different from any of your other uh, well, previous different. episodes. It's already different. I mean, we are wearing space helmets and you're wearing a tie. So there's <laughs> that. Pedro hasn't, <laughs> worn a, uh, Pedro hasn't worn a tie since 1999. At least. No. I didn't even wear a tie. My, I didn't even wear a tie at my mom's funeral. It just felt. I felt like she would. Her soul wouldn't recognize me, so I just didn't do it. You gotta do it. So Shane, tell us, tell us, um, like first where you are, uh, right now, and you know a little bit about you and your job, and we'll go. We'll go from there. Sure. And why am I wearing a ridiculous tie? Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, I uh, I work at a company called David Clark Company. We're located in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, we're primarily a government contractor with our main customers being NASA and the US Air Force. And uh, we design, build, manufacture, test uh, spacesuits and other aerospace crew protective equipment. And uh, my job, I lead up all of the new design activities. Um, so, you know, what we, we really have a production line where we, you know, build suits primarily for the U 2, which is a high altitude space plane um but uh but my job is not so much involved in that aspect although i do get involved a little bit in that but it's more in some of the newer products that we're designing for nasa new spacesuits um, we're actually currently designing three new spacesuits uh, one is for the boeing starliner which is a spacecraft designed to take crew members to and from the international space station uh, we're designing a new suit for NASA's Orion spacecraft, which is designed to go to deep space destinations. Um, so the first stop will be to the moon um, and then eventually uh, other further destinations beyond just low Earth orbit where the International Space Station is. Um, and then we're actually designing uh, some new suit components for NASA's XEMU which is the suit that once they ride Orion and get to the moon, they'll actually walk around on the surface of the moon um, in that suit. So, so yeah, that's what I do. Um, it's an old school company. That's why I'm wearing a tie. Um, we're all still coming in, even, even though we're here in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we've, we're constantly getting in suits, evaluating things, testing things. So a lot of our job is here in person. And um, we can do a little bit of work from home, but. Uh, for the most part, a lot of our job is is here in person, and, and so that's why I'm here. You guys are like a fashion house, but for outer space. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. I, I mean, in an amazing way. I love it. Like it's crazy. 
Well, yeah. so I want to I want to dig in a little bit um, on on like there's two things in particular that I want I want to ask. Like the first one is uh, like over your career when you started off, maybe going to graduate school, and how has it? How are you like? What so first of all, what data are you looking at? How are you analyzing data, and how is that informing the decisions that are being made about the the creation of of the suit itself? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, so the data that we deal, at least that I deal with, is probably very different from the types of data that you guys are are used to dealing with, where you're used to dealing with aggregating lots of user data databases and that sort of thing. You know, we're typically looking at test data. Um, where we've done, you know, a test on a suit or a suit component, and um, and then feeding that back into the design. Um, so, you know, we've got all sorts of data from tests that we've done over the years, um, but it's all, you know, very specific to, you know, that suit or that um, component that we were testing and. You know, just to give you an idea of, you know, some of the types of things that we do, um, we do CO2 washout testing. And so that basically just means how well does the, the CO2 that we're exhaling get washed out, get carried away um, so that you're not sitting inside a plastic bag and re-inhaling your exhaled CO2. So different suit designs get rid of that CO2 in different ways and some are better than others. And so we'll design and, and then um, run these large integrated CO2 washout tests where we put different subjects in the suit, flow different flow rates of gas, and we'll be collecting CO2 data. What's the CO2 level here? What's the CO2 level? We'll actually wear a little thing that puts a sensor right at our nose and collect that data. Then we analyze it, look at the, um, the curves as you inhale, as you exhale, get an idea of what type of CO2 level might you actually be experiencing as compared to a normal baseline? Because obviously, if it gets too high, that's going to be dangerous. Um, you know, other types of tests that we do are really looking at um, when you think about a spacesuit, you're, you're basically inside this, like, you know, kind of human shaped balloon, and it's difficult to move in. We pressurize the inside of the suit to give you your own little atmosphere because there's no atmosphere outside of the suit. And what that does is it kind of tightens everything up. So imagine being in, you know, the skinniest, tightest pair of jeans, but, you know, times 10. And so just simple movements become difficult. Now we as pattern designers try to do everything we can to make the joint a little simpler to bend. Um, but inevitably it's going to take some additional torque, say, to bend an elbow or to bend a knee than it does just in your normal clothes. So what we do is we'll build up a test elbow or a test knee or a full suit, and then we'll measure how much torque does it take to bend that elbow or that knee. And then we look at each iteration of our design and try to drive that torque as low as we possibly can. And we look at other historical designs. Here's what the torque has been for this design. And so we're looking at, at data, a lot of scientific data, a lot of engineering data. Um, we do not have a lot of, you know, user data. You think about the number of people that have been to space is a very, you know, low number. I think it's in the 600, something like that. Um, you know, the number of people that we can even legitimately put in a suit when we build it, it's a relatively small number. So it's very difficult to get really good data sets. Um, and that's one of the challenges of our industry in general is even, you know, 
you know, even what we would consider a large sample size is like 12 people, maybe, you know, so uh, very different challenges, but certainly, yeah, a lot of, the, a lot of similarities too. Let, let me ask a question real quick, Andy, because I love this like data collection thing, you know, obviously. Um, so I, I get, I understand, I understand the constraints you're operating with and uh, the small population of people that wear the, uh, the equipment. We hear a lot about like the, uh, the use of sensors in just like regular clothing and how that is a future that we are marching toward. I mean, obviously you guys are at the cutting edge of like sensory loaded clothing and equipment that's attached or not attached, but um, affixed to the body. Um, do you got, you, you don't have to answer it if it's confidential, but like, do you get interest from clothes manufacturers about like your techniques and, and the sensors you work? like? If, turning my underwear into the internet of things? Like is Haynes reaching out wondering what's the vibe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, a little bit, yes. Um, so certainly, yeah, there's a lot of crossover there now. And, um, and yeah, there's a lot of interest in either collaborating and we've collaborated with a lot of uh, different partners, folks that make little sensors that they can embed in fibers or into fabrics or um, right on your skin. We do a lot um, on the development and test side when it comes to wearing sensors inside the suit and collecting data. Um, so we've had you know, a lot of partnerships with MIT recently where we're wearing a system of sensors inside the suit and doing tests and it's collecting contact data between the person and the suit. It's collecting some of that joint torque data that I mentioned, range of motion. So it's measuring you know, how how far I can bend my elbow when I'm not in the suit versus when I am in the suit. When it comes to actually integrating sensors um, in the actual suit in flight, we typically get a lot of pushback on that. And mm. that's uh, been something that historically has just, you know, always been kind of this battle between um, the engineers and the flight docs and the scientists and the crew members or in the early days, you know, high altitude pilots or fighter pilots and, and that sort of thing is that, you know, the engineers, the scientists, the flight docs, we want all the data, right? We want to know as much as you can, much about you as we can at all times. And, you know, the crew members, at least, you know, historically, it's gotten a little bit better recently, but historically, they didn't want, especially the flight docs, knowing anything. Because if the flight docs saw us in some data, that you had a little bit of a heart murmur or your eyesight wasn't your good, then you know you'd no longer be able to fly. And yeah. so you, you always had this tension there. Uh, now there are, you know, nowadays it's a lot better. There are some medical doctor astronauts that have helped, you know, bridge that gap. And um, so nowadays we can get a little bit more of in-flight data, but it's typically limited to like heart rate and uh, maybe a few things. And then obviously when they're on the International Space Station, not in the suit, they're doing a lot of medical tests and sending that back down and, and just learning about what it's like to, to live in space for long periods and whatnot. Um, but at least for in-suit sensors, um, it's mostly uh, on the design and development phase. Um, but yeah, we've been, we've been working with uh, a few different companies and, and uh, schools. Um, we actually have a, a really cool partnership with Reebok going right now. Um, which was something where they kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, they, they approached us and just kind of said, hey, you know, um, 
they're located actually right in Boston, um, just down the road. So they said, hey, you know, let's just get together and talk about design ideas. And, you know, we have kind of similar businesses in some ways and then very, very different businesses in others. Kind of like you're saying that we're a fashion house for space. You know, so we do, you know, we both do clothing. We don't do apparel. Uh, ours are just for very extreme environments and very low quantities. And there's obviously for commercial products, high quantities, but there's definitely a lot of crossover there. And together we've been able to kind of partner with them and, um, and kind of leverage the two companies' unique capabilities and, um, and come up with some, some pretty cool things. And, and so one of them has been looking at some in-suit sensor stuff, so. I can see that. I can see the application for athletics. In, in for that. sure. For sure, law enforcement, like uh, commercial piloting, I can see lots of applications. I mean, look at the ridiculous uniforms that airline pilots wear. Like they're, it's the least functional, most like ceremonial looking clothing I've ever seen. Like it serves no purpose except to look like a goofball. <laughs> you know, shout out to pilots. You guys are my favorites. Thank you for shouting yeah. But I wish you didn't have to wear like, you know, like uh, 1950s police officer uniforms, right? Like, it'd be just kind of cool if you could wear like a flight suit, you know, like a military pilot, you know? Can you imagine? I mean, I was in the Army. I don't know much about the Air Force and the Navy. That's where all the jet pilots are. But like, I can't imagine a Navy pilot walking around dressed like a school principal, right? Like, it's just right. like <laughs> the least functional thing I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, that that's going to change in our lifetime. I don't know. Right. I feel like I just don't get the purpose of those. I feel like the research you guys are doing obviously is for an extreme application, but there's got to be functional clothing that could benefit commercial airline pilots, you know, train, what train engineers, whatever. So like do their job better, you know, like pocket in your arm, like this kind of stuff. What, I mean, whatever. I don't know anything about this stuff, but I just feel like the monkey suit is not it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's, uh, you know, that's, that's something that we always do is we design for function. For function. function. We really look at the requirements. Hey, what does this person need to do? And what's the best possible material or design that can enable them to do that um, in the, you know, with the least impact to them, the most comfort, that sort of thing. And all else is kind of secondary. You know, that, just makes perfect, that makes perfect sense. And like, airline pilots is what like imagine bus drivers like just they sit in a chair for nine hours and they're wearing this like horrible uniform that clearly has no function what about lawyers? Comfortable. what is the huh? what should lawyers I, we don't have optimal well you know it's funny you ask that question because you shane you might know this when you said there's only been like 600 people in outer space plus or minus like that made me think and then you mentioned medical doctor astronaut started wondering if there's ever been a lawyer astronaut, but I, I have to believe the answer to that is no, because that person would still be floating in outer space somewhere because they got injected from wherever. Has there been, do you know if there's been a lawyer? I don't know, I don't know off the top of my head and I'll, 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 uh, I'll look into that. You know, I kind of, I don't think there, ha there is, just because it's just, there just isn't that much crossover. You know, they're typically, I mean, of course, all the early ones were fighter pilots, test pilots, that sort of thing. Then it got into scientists, engineers, doctors. Um, you know, there have been a few uh, folks that uh, that have flown to space that aren't technically astronauts, right? Sure. So either paid money, or you know, uh, back in the '80s, you know, when the shuttle was flying, they were routinely flying other people. You know, uh, right. just like when uh, you know, a 
the best example is the unfortunate Challenger explosion um, when Chris McAuliffe, a teacher, was flying. But you know, they flew politicians. You know, they flew. Uh, so actually, uh, there was one uh, senator that flew, and potentially he was. I don't know if he had a, a lawyer background, but hmm. uh, of course, you know, John Glenn flew again, you know, flew on the shuttle and, uh, and then maybe some of the, uh, some of the, what they call space flight participants who are the folks that have paid their $30 million yeah. to get an experience to fly up on the Soyuz and spend two weeks on the International Space Station. Um, so potentially one of them was a lawyer. I don't know. Uh, that makes sense. How did you, like, what do you study to get into, like, tell me about your education. How do you end up doing this, like, crazy interesting work. <laughs> sure, yeah. So I, I took a little bit of a circuitous path. Um, but basically, I started out um, doing mechanical engineering. I'm from Canada. So I went to McGill University. And at the time, I was just really interested in um, designing things that interface with the human body. So I was really coming at it more from a sports background, played a ton of sports as a kid. And so I was looking at designing running shoes, skis, golf clubs, any equipment, you know, hey, how can I take these mechanical engineering principles and uh, apply them to make better equipment that performs better? So I guess I was kind of on the path, uh, but I wasn't really thinking about space. And then it was when I was at McGill uh, that just had a few professors that were doing really interesting research in space and got me, got, kind of got the space bug. And so then I said, hey, how can I kind of merge these two interests? And that's when I went to the University of Maryland and I did my PhD down there in aerospace engineering. Um, and the University of Maryland has a neutral buoyancy research facility. So basically a big swimming pool where you can um, simulate microgravity. Right. And so while I was there, uh, I was able to actually design and build my own suit and pressurize it and get in and go underwater inside the suit and experience what it's like to be in, you know, simulated microgravity and inside the pressurized envelope of the suit and what it's like to, to feel those joints and feel the, the additional joint torque and the reduction, re, restrictions in field of view and that sort of thing. So that was just an incredible, you know, experience that really kind of, uh, you know, put me on the trajectory to where I am now. Well, well, that sounds cool. We'll have to have a whole episode on like what it's like to be in the buoyant, what did you call it? The buoyancy pool? I don't even know what to yeah. call it. Ne yeah, neutral buoyancy facility. Neutral buoyancy pool. Yeah, that sounds wild. And I'm sure um, was an awesome experience. While you were talking about the pool, it, I, my, I went back to the bus drivers and the, and the commercial pilots and started, I'm a big Formula One fan. So I started thinking about like race car driving. And I, I remember that Lewis Hamilton, the, the, like the foremost Formula One driver right now, um, visited a, a NASA, I don't even know what facility, but somewhere up there, it could have been the same thing because there was a big pool, I remember. And like, they were basically, he had this open conversation with astronauts about how the experience of being in a Formula One car on the body, like the physical toll on the body is a lot like takeoff, except he does it like once a week, you know, um, for the last... 30 years or however long, not 30, but he's been racing for 15, 20 years. Um, so that's another application I can think of. Like, I'm sure, is there, like, do you ever see any overlap between like extreme sports? I know we talked about athletic apparel, but like extreme sports, like motocross, uh, obviously motor sports, what else is out there? Like, I think of surfing and like the, I, there's so many different things. Do you get involved in any of that stuff or? 
Yeah, a little bit. So you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, race car racing and whatnot. So we actually developed this uh, system. It's called the inflatable driver restraint system. Mm. So it uses a lot of our inflatable technologies. And it's basically kind of a similar technology as airbags. Um, but it's got cushions on the sides, restraints, head and neck restraints, all sorts of different systems that you could mix and match for different types of um, of race cars. And that system was worn and used by a lot of drivers. Uh, this was in like the 90s and early 2000s. Um, we don't actually make it anymore. And I don't know, it might, there might be one or two drivers that still use it. Um, but so we have delved in that. Um, as far as extreme sports, um, I mean, we made the, uh, the suits for uh, Felix Baumgartner as part of Red Bull Stratos. So he was the guy that uh, jumped from 128,000 feet and broke the speed of sound in free fall um, and set the record for longest free fall and whatnot. So he was a base jumper and he kind of partnered with Red Bull and, and wanted to, you know, take it to the ultimate extreme. What altitude did he jump at again? Uh, 128,000 feet. So he free fell for about four minutes and 20 seconds um, before he finally then pulled the cord and, uh, and, you know, parachuted down just like a normal skydiver. But because he jumped from so high, the atmosphere is so thin up there that unlike a normal skydiver, you know, you've heard the concept of terminal velocity where you'll, you'll accelerate until you reach a velocity where your drag is basically matching the force of gravity that's accelerating you down and you just won't go any faster. Well, up at those altitudes, there's hardly any drag. So he was just accelerating, 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 um, and got up to Mach 1.24 um, at his peak before then he did start getting down into the lower atmosphere. And then that did start to slowly decelerate him until by the time he got down to around 15,000, 10,000 feet above ground level, he was going the same terminal velocity as any other uh, skydiver that had jumped out. So. Um, yeah, that was a that was a pretty extreme uh, project. Uh, a lot of interesting challenges for us to design to, um, but uh, for us it was really you know what we the reason we took that project on and you know Red Bull was kind of an interesting <laughs> partner, very different customer for us than your typical NASA or the U.S. Air Force or something. Um, for us, that was an opportunity to prove out some of those technologies and ideas for potential future high altitude bailout from, you know, a NASA or an Air Force vehicle, you know, if crew members ever have to bail out, hey, let's come up with what are the challenges and what kind of problems do we need to solve? And we learned a ton from that, which we actually leverage and use in, in some future projects, so. I wanna ask you a related question, Shane. Like one thing that is actually an overlap between what we do in some small way and what you do is innovation. And when I, early on when I met you, I think I asked you, you know, probably over one of our first few beers, like I asked you, what is your, what is your career goal? You know, and your career goals are very different than, than some other people's. And I wanted to, so number one, to like, tell us about that a little bit, but then what's really cool about that to me is I want to expand upon and talk a little bit about when innovation is your job and you need to build a team to create something from nothing. Um, so can you, can we go there a little bit? It's really an interesting overlap. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the conversation you're referencing, it's a, it's a fairly, uh, you know, high-minded or, you know, loftier, you know, whatever you want to call it goal. But, um, basically, you know, I, I see uh, the next step for humanity 
is to become a multi-planet civilization. And so I want to, in however small way, help, you know, throughout the course of my career, help that become a reality. And, you know, I, I definitely recognize that <laughs> it's going to be some, you know, infinitesimally small slice. Um, but let's, hey, let's, let's march towards there because, you know, in the, in the very grand scheme of things, you know, when you look at the, you know, the time scales of, you know, the universe and whatnot, everything just becomes so infinitesimally unimportant and whatnot, you know, well, so... Advertising and marketing tech is close. We have this conversation, by the way. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you know that's kind of the, you know, the kind of very out there concept that keeps me going sometimes. Um, you know, when then when you're dealing with the minutia of, you know, the day to day. But, um, but yeah. So, so how do we get there, and how do we innovate, and how do we, um, you know, keep improving on designs and and eventually get there and you know that's something yeah you know I, I think I struggle with every day I think everybody's trying to find those you know golden nuggets of how do you do that um, and I can tell you it's it's nearly impossible working with schedulers because you know and, and at least with us you know we'll get these projects and we work with the scheduler and okay so you know when are you going to have that problem solved is it going to be four weeks six weeks eight weeks you know and I mean, a lot of times these, you know, you have no idea. Um, if I knew that, then I'd just solve it today. If I knew what, you know, the problem I was going to solve. So, um, you know, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I found um, and, and that we've really tried to change the culture here. And, you know, this isn't uh, anything too earth shattering um, because it's the same type of thing you hear from SpaceX and some of these others. But it's basically to, you know, not be afraid of failure and to go ahead and fail, fail fast, fail often, fail, just fail, 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 fail. And- uh, Sounds familiar, Pedro. I go to my job every day. <laughs> but it sounds familiar, sounds familiar. Your employer invented that phrase, move fast and break stuff. But I mean, it's not, it's not, people have been doing it for a long time, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Right. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I noticed that, you know, when I first got here, I mean, there was definitely a, a huge hesitation to to you know or a huge you know that people are just worried about failure or being seen as a failure and as a result then they weren't trying things they weren't you know nobody was innovating nobody's trying things. they're just so scared of well what happens if it doesn't work and what happens if it fails and so you know we've really over the past you know 10 years or so really tried to change that mindset that if you try something and it fails that's a good thing that actually you learned something. What did you learn from it? Okay, you know, you found out why it fails. Now you can apply that. Um, you know, similarly, we really look at old designs that maybe failed, um, but maybe it was 30 years ago and man, it was a great design or a great concept and they just didn't have the materials technology at the time. And now we do, you know, we have so much better materials nowadays, that sort of thing. So, you know, we'll really, you know, pull out old concepts, pull out old ideas, really analyze them. Um, how do you, um, how do you hire on your team? So when you're, when you're adding people, how do you hire someone that has that mindset? Uh, <laughs> like, well, we talk, we talk a lot, like legal hiring is not, not as exciting, but one of the things we talk about quite a bit is like, is how hard it is and just how hard it is to build teams. 
and how hard it is to build teams filled with what I think Pedro, one of the things Pedro and I agree on a lot is that when you do hire, you really want to find people that have innate curiosity and have like a continuing desire to learn. Um, one of the reasons, you know, Pedro and I became friends. And one of the reasons I'm friends with you is we have this, this desire. So how do you like find that in your space when you're building teams? Yeah, it, it's challenging. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. And those are the kind of the key traits that I look for is curiosity, willingness to learn, uh, willingness to fail. Um, usually, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll start just getting into it with people about, you know, what are some of the things that they like to do outside of work and just start to see if, you know, they're the type of person that, you know, has some really weird hobby or, you know, something where they get in, they really get into it. They're just so curious and stuff, you know. Um, so I do look for that. I, I, I really try to build like multidisciplinary teams. And I mean, that's really when you think about a spacesuit, it has to do so many different functions. Um, and you really need kind of experts in a whole variety of different disciplines. Um, so we're really always, you know, not looking for one specific character trait or, or one specific type of person. And I think that's true of any good team, right? Is that you've got very different skill sets that are coming together to work, to work together. But like to give you an example, kind of one of my, you know, um, lead pattern designers, you know, she came from a background of 20 years making wedding dresses. And, you know, it's amazing the kind of ideas or the concepts that she'll bring to the table um, that, you know, none of the engineers, I can guarantee you, you know, whatever have thought of, and they, they come up with great ideas too, you know, and that she wouldn't come up with. And so I think that's... What did you see, Shane, when you met her? Like, what did you see that drove you to think? Because, uh, like, we talk about this a lot too. We talk about it maybe in the context of, like, well, some lawyer that's arguing cases in court, would they be very good going inside of a company? And a lot of times the answer is yes, but it's very hard to to you figure that out. The answer is no. Yeah, yeah. And we had we had paid, you know, um, someone Pedro worked with named Derek on who was a lifetime litigator, like 20 years. And he went into Oracle and was one of the best corporate lawyers they had. But but you don't suss that out without without uh, having something that hooked you in there. So like what that was a good example. What was that? Yeah, I mean, I, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess speaking globally, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I'm still searching for that answer, I think, you know, I mean, I think if we all knew that answer, then we just build the perfect team and we'd be off and running. And, you know, we've, we've I've had successes and I was talking about failure, I've had failures, you know, I've hired people that haven't worked out, they haven't, you know, so, so I do wish we could suss that out in an interview. And in general, I think interviewing is just such a flawed process. And um, it's, it's really nearly impossible to, to suss out if the person will be great um, when they come in. Um, but, you know, in that specific case, it was, it was um, you know, kind of just, just the passion that she spoke about what she was talking about. So in that case, it was wedding dresses, but she just spoke about it with a certain passion certain you know that you could ask her any question and she could speak to that and then you could go a level down and she could just keep going if you wanted to it was just kind of like yeah however you want to go i can go if you want to know about wedding dresses you know and um but yeah i know i'm, I'm still looking for the answer i mean we talked about it a lot here you know um, when we're hiring whether it's new engineers or designers or um, really anyone on this entire department we want them to be passionate about space 
Um, but really, we want them to just be passionate about what they're doing. You know. Bridger, what about you? How do I do this? I mean, I agree with everything Jane said. Like, it's it's hard. You could read somebody totally wrong because you're a ball and mix of biases and confusion as you're deciding who's best for a role. It's really hard. There's no objective methodology that I've seen that it gets it right every time. And I think that's because every team is made up of different types of people. Every company is different. Every job is different. And then you have to nail all three of those. And sometimes you like the person you think is the least best suited turns out to be the best suited. Like it's just one of those things. I was talking to uh, my former boss at Oracle the other day, Bert, who's going to be on the on the podcast next year, and you know, he there was a disagreement about hiring me at Oracle, like you know, and he, you know, obviously he was on the side of hiring me, um, and had to advocate for it. And if that I don't get that job, I'm probably not here doing this podcast, right? And you know, <laughs> not wearing my like home spacesuit. So same, like, you know, same thing the same thing happened to me. I mean, my I was a uh, in-house lawyer at TD Ameritrade and my boss left. And the question was, who should I go? Who would be my new boss? And there was one lawyer who was like, I don't want him. I don't, I don't like him. I don't want him. And I, and it's stood out to me these years. Cause I don't have that many people that, that don't like me. You know, maybe there's a bunch of people that are neutral, but, but, but there was one person I didn't get along with him particularly well. And I ended up going working for David Hale. And that worked out really well. Yeah. And, and I'm not where I am without that. And with David, it was it was like Shane said, like we had a lot of time to establish who we were with each other. And he was like, I, I, I you know, he bought in uh, that, that I could be successful. And without that, without people believing that you can, it's really difficult to get anywhere. You need people like that. And it resonated what you said, Shane, because I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've tried to, 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 to figure out what's the trick, like what's the hook to getting to know someone uh, on, on it? Is, it. is it asking them, well, what do you like to consume? What do you like to read? What do you like to, do you like to cook? Do you like to go for a jog? Like, what do you like to do? And will that, give, will that give me an edge? Like, will that give me insight? And I think, I think I've, and I wanna hear this from you guys. I think I've gotten better <laughs> over the years, but I have no idea why. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely some, uh, yeah, your intuition and, and just with practice, you get better at it. Um, but I, I kind of feel the same way. I feel like every time I do interview and I go through that interview process, I'm always, I'm, I'm all, almost like collecting data on myself. I'm changing the process a little bit. I'm asking slightly different questions and then seeing, well, did that work? And, you know, then on, for next time. Yep, we got a good person. So okay, you know. So yeah, it's it's tricky. So in yeah. your opinion, in your opinion, are, are we are we going to get to Mars? And if so, when? <laughs> I I definitely think we will. I certainly hope we will. Um, I think it's unfortunately going to be a while um, before we do. Like probably not in our lifetimes, which is kind of sad for me to say. I think it's you know it's the next logical goal um that humanity needs to go the moon's probably a good stepping stone though the moon's probably a good place to go to just prove out some of the technologies and whatnot because you go to mars it's basically a two and a half three year round trip uh six months there you got to stay there for a year and a half for the planets to realign and whatnot and then 
in six months, come home. Something goes wrong while you're there. You, you can't just turn around and come home. You can't even just call home because of the time delay uh, for communications. You know, it can be 40 minutes before you get an answer from ground. You know, whereas we're, if we're on the moon and something goes wrong, we can be home in three days. Uh, we can be in just about constant communication uh, with ground and uh, great teams of scientists and engineers and whatnot. So, you know, if we establish a lunar base, a lunar colony, and actually put a, a permanent footprint human presence on the moon and prove that out and, and establish that for a hundred years, um, or maybe not even that long, but, you know, a decent amount of time, um, then I think we'd be in a great position to actually then jump from there and send humans to Mars and, and slowly start colonizing to Mars, colonizing Mars. But realistically, other than maybe the first couple missions to Mars, the rest of them are all going to be one way. And maybe even the, maybe even right from the beginning, they're going to be one-way trips, you know, it's a colonization. It's like, you know, them coming over to the new world and, you know, you're not turning around and going home, you're establishing a new life. And, um, you know, and, and realistically that would be the way to do it. So it, it's, but we're, we're, we're a little bit of a ways away from that. I have some thoughts that yeah. I think are important. The next person on the moon that is wearing an American flag patch should be a woman, case closed. If it's not, I object. The first person on Mars, if it happens to be an American, should be a Native American. If not, I object. <laughs> May the NASA people be listening. <laughs> well, they are listening on the woman front because they have already said that, um, and actually they just announced uh, 18 astronauts that are what they're calling the, the Artemis crew, and one of them will be the first woman on the moon. Excellent. I hope she's the first next person on the moon, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, a lot of white guys on the moon. I'm a little tired of it. Sorry, right. guys. Yes, absolutely. Not, yeah. that, yeah. not that many, actually. Right. Uh, well, yeah. It's been a while. So, so long ago that a guy hit a golf ball that just landed. Jane, <laughs> <laughs> we got to, we got to, we got to wrap up here. But man, thanks for joining us. Thanks awesome. for putting on a space helmet. Um, Thanks for rapping with us about stuff that's a, a little bit different. Um, it's been really fun. Super yeah. Fun. Yeah. No, thank you. Appreciate you guys having me on. This has been fun, fun to chat. Uh, happy to do it anytime. Thanks, Thanks for hanging out, man. Appreciate it. All, All right. right. Thanks, Shane.